begin a series of messages, as I said, in the book of First Peter today. And Peter, of course, was the leader of the apostles. He and Paul are the two most well-known, the two most famous of the apostles. And the apostles are very important. The Bible says that the foundation of the church were the prophets and the apostles, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So everything that God is building has been built upon Jesus and the prophets and the apostles. And we meet Peter in John chapter 1. His brother Andrew brought him to Jesus. You may remember the story. He comes to Jesus and Jesus changes his name. First time he meets Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, he changes things. And he changed his name. Uh, Jesus said to him, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Well, Peter had many interesting and powerful encounters with Jesus if you read the Gospels, didn't he? He, uh, later on, he sees Jesus. Jesus is walking on the seashore. Peter's in the boat with Andrew. James and John are in their boat. And Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And all those men left fishing and went to follow him. A little while later, we see Peter. He's with Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. And he makes this great confession. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, You are Peter, and upon this rock, this rock of your confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, because my Father has revealed this to you, and you've made this confession. And it was a glorious moment. But then the next scene, the very next scene, you know what happens? Jesus tells the the apostles, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And you know what happens? The Bible says Peter took him to the side and started rebuking him. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, looks at what it says. But he turned, this is Jesus, he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You think you've had some highs and lows with God? One minute he said, Man, you're Peter. I'm building my church on that. The next minute he says, Get behind me, Satan. All you think about is the ways of men. One night, on the night before the crucifixion in the upper room, remember Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter says, no, Lord, I'll never deny you. And Jesus said this this to him in Luke 22, 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Jesus didn't even listen to his, I'll never do that, I'll never do that. When you've returned, Peter, after you've fallen, strengthen your brethren. And in that process of Peter falling, remember the story? Jesus goes out to Peter on that seashore in John chapter 21. Peter had done going back to fishing. He left fishing to follow. Now he'd stopped following and went back to fishing. And you know what? When you stop following, you go back to your old ways. So Peter stopped following and he started fishing. And Jesus shows up on the seashore and he prepares breakfast. And you remember the story. See, Peter had denied him three times. And three times Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me, Peter? Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me more than these? Peter answered yes every time. And every time in his restoration, Jesus gave him something to do. He told him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. You know what basically he was saying, Peter? 
I got something for you to do. I want you to shepherd my flock. One of the most interesting things happens at, that, at the end of that chapter. After he tells him three times, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, here's what Jesus does. He tells Peter that you're going to die for me, and I'm going to tell you how. John chapter 21, verse 18 19, look at this. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. In other words, you're going to be bound and they're going to lead you to places you don't want to go and they're going to lead you to your death. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Listen, that's what I want said about my death, that I would glorify God. But look, he told him, you're going to be bound. You're going to go places you don't want to go. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He says, I'm going to tell you, you're going to die for me, Peter. They're going to bind you. You're going to be, you're going to be taken to places you don't want to go, but follow me anyway. And you know what Peter did? He followed him. And this letter that we are beginning to study today is part of, part of Peter's shepherding the flock. It's part of Peter's strengthening the brethren. It's part of Peter's following Jesus. Now, there are four main themes of First Peter that we need to understand before we study this book. It will help us to understand it as we walk, work our way through it over the next couple of months. The first theme is salvation. This is what this first and much of the second chapter is about. It's the foundation upon which our lives are built. The, just like that song, we got saved and God changed everything when we got saved. And his saved people, he's going to tell them that they're strangers and pilgrims in this world. Your life changed when you got saved, and this place is no longer your home. We read it in verse 1, I mean verse 2 there. He, uh, in verse 1, excuse me, he says to the pilgrims. To the pilgrims. Pilgrims are alien residents or strangers. Over in chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open, he refers to it again. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look what he calls them there. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul he says you are strangers and pilgrims they were citizens of heaven now and though they were scattered apart across these five regions of the roman empire the pontius galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia those were all parts of northern asia minor which is modern day turkey that's where they were scattered apart abroad but he says listen you're not that's not your home you're a stranger you know what a stranger is? A stranger is someone who's in a land that's not home. But you know what a pilgrim is? A pilgrim is someone who's heading for home. You're both. When you got saved, you became a stranger to this world. This world that you had only known all your life became a stranger to you. And you're passing through and you're heading home. You are a stranger and a pilgrim. The second theme that he gives which is closely tied to this, is second coming. Second coming. It's a minor theme in my, my understanding because Peter doesn't explain it. He just references it over and over again. He just references the, the end time. He references Jesus' coming. It's, look, look, you have your Bibles open. Look at verse 5. He's going to talk about it at the very last of verse 5. Who, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 7, he says this. At the very end of that, he says, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation, the future revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is about, Jesus appearing again. So Peter's, uh, he references the second coming because, listen, salvation is not complete until we are with him. 
It's not finished until we are with him. I'm saved, but one day I'm going to be saved to sin no more. I'm going to be with him. Whether I get there by death or I get there because he shows up. Second coming. The third theme is submission. He is going to tell them of the submission to government, submission to masters. He's going to talk about submission in marriage. He's going to talk about submission to their elders. And of course, he's going to talk about submission to God. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Humble yourself. Trust him. The last theme, and this is the major theme, is suffering. Suffering is the major theme of the book of 1 Peter. The Thompson Chain Reference Bible, which I use a lot in my studies, says it is the key word of the book. At least 15 times in five chapters, Peter references suffering. And he uses eight different Greek words to describe it. Warren Wiersbe says this, some of the Christians were suffering because they were living godly lives and doing what is right and good. We think, well, you shouldn't, do, you shouldn't suffer for doing what's right and good. You're a stranger in this world. Some were suffering because they had taken the name of Christ. They called themselves Christians. People are still suffering. I saw a thing on, on uh, Facebook, a story where a man stabbed his wife, a Muslim man stabbed his wife 15 times because she converted to Christianity, killed her after 15 times she took the name of Christ some were being railed at by unsaved people Peter wrote to encourage them to be good witness to their persecutors and remember that their suffering would lead to glory Peter had experienced this remember he was thrown into prison he they healed a, a man out by the temple by the beautiful gate and next thing you know Peter was thrown into jail he was beaten uh, they killed John uh, they killed James in Acts chapter 12 Herod did and Peter was next in line you remember the story they were going to get Peter next and an angel showed up and set him free but Peter had been beaten for his faith and his he was close to death he knew what it was like to be persecuted and yet Peter's book is also prophetic because the worst suffering had not started for these people yet. It was coming. This is a prophetic book. He's warning these people that suffering is on the horizon. In, in chapter 4, verse 12, he says this. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Which is yet to try you is the tense. It has not happened yet. Oh, you're suffering, but there's more suffering coming. John MacArthur gives us a good background on this. Listen to this. The dark clouds of the first outbreak of official persecution instigated by the insane Emperor Nero were already gathering on the horizon, seeking scapegoats to divert the public's suspicion that he had started the great fire of July 64 that devastated Rome. Nero pinned the blame on the Christians, whom he already perceived as enemies because they would worship none but Christ. See, Christians wouldn't worship the emperor. They only worshiped Jesus. And the Romans became suspicious of them. So how did he persecute them? As a result, they were encased in in wax and burned at the stake to light his gardens. They became human candles. He crucified some and others he threw to wild beasts. And it was as a result of Nero's persecution that both Peter and Paul were martyred. First Peter will teach you how to suffer. It will teach you to keep your faith when you suffer. It will teach you to accept suffering even though you can't make sense of it. So how do you strengthen and encourage people who are suffering and hurting? 
How do people live secure and with assurance in a world that's increasingly hostile to them for their faith? How can people live with hope when they're told persecution is awaiting you and it's going to grow? There's only one way and one way only. Those people must know that they're saved and be absolutely sure that they are under the loving care of God. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of situations, we must know and believe that our Father is watching and caring for us. And this is what Peter is seeking to do as he begins this book. Because he's going to remind them they're true believers. And nothing that happens in this world can change that. Nothing that happens in this world can overcome their status as the children of God if they've truly believed. So true believers have hope in suffering. And I'm going to give you three reasons from this text that we studied this, that we saw this morning. The first thing is true believers are chosen by the Father. They have hope because they are chosen by the Father. He calls them elect. Those pilgrims in verse 1, that means they're, this is not their home and they're passing through. But he says, because you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. While this world may turn against you, the Father has chosen you, is what he's telling them. The elect means, the word elect means to pick out, to select. It means, uh, it's similar to the idea of the church, the called out ones. The word elect or chosen is used in the Bible to speak of Israel in the Old Testament, to speak of angels. There are elect angels. It, It spoke of Jesus himself. He was the chosen Savior. And it also speaks of the church. And the Bible says it's according to foreknowledge. Notice that? According to the foreknowledge of God. You know it's foreknowledge because God chose us in eternity past. God chose us in eternity past. Ephesians 1 4 says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Holy. He chose us in him. Now there are many various interpretations of what this means, this idea of foreknowledge. I believe it means that God has a complete and total understanding and knowledge of me as a person and everything about me. Everything about me, everything I would ever do, everything I wouldn't do. God knows you better than you know yourself. The Greek word foreknowledge is the Greek word prognosko. We get our word prognosis from it. When you go to the doctor, the doctor makes a diagnosis. You tell him the symptoms, he tries to diagnose the problem. And then he or she tries to make a prognosis. What are we going to do to fix it? What's going to be the outcome? You, in two weeks, hopefully you'll be better. That's why they say, in two weeks, if you're not better, call me. Because we're saying we got two weeks. That's our prognosis. Sometimes the prognosis are good. Sometimes they're not any good. But this word means that God knew us. He loved us. He chose us. And his prognosis for us was that we would be saved. That we would be his. This week I was reading my devotions and I get email devotions every day from Adrian Rogers Ministry, Love Worth Finding. And on the day that I was reading, writing this sermon, finishing this sermon, uh, I got, this was my devotion for that day. Listen to this. This came right out of his email. Did you know that God chose you before you, he laid the foundations of the earth? I was like, yes, sir, I did. I've been studying that. Thank you, Lord. He says this, you talk about old time religion. Well, friends, you can't get much older than that. (laughs) Before there were any trees, mountains, birds, and bees, God chose you to be one of his children. 
And then he quotes Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, God certainly must have chosen me before I came into this world because he never would have chosen me afterward. <laughs> Absolutely. You're, you're not that prize at the county fair you thought you were. That means that you and I cannot take the credit for our salvation or bear the weight of maintaining it. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us. God's choosing doesn't nullify my responsibility to believe. My responsibility is to believe when I hear the gospel. Matter of fact, faith is all over this text. The response to God's choosing is to believe. Matter of fact, look at verse 5 again. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Election and faith belong in the same sentence, and it's a sentence only God can write. I believe that God chose me, but yes, I must also believe. John Phillips, writing on this subject, says this, God has elected a certain company to become members of the royal family of heaven. However, he never violates our own volition. God woos, he doesn't ravage, he doesn't endow his creatures with wills of their own, with the power of choice and personal accountability for their behavior, and then act as though they had no such thing. God's election of certain members of the human family to become members of the heavenly family takes into full account the response of each individual when confronted by the Holy Spirit with the offer of salvation. As people study the Bible, there's this great tension between God's choosing and man's believing. And some people say, well, you can't have both. And so you, they, choose, they, they believe in one or the other. And, and, and here's what I do. I believe that it's deeper than I can understand. And I just trust that God has worked it out. And I just believe in God choosing me. And God, under the Holy Spirit's conviction, enabled me to believe. And Peter is reminding them that though they're suffering and though they're going to suffer in this present life, God chose them in the past and he will not leave them in the present. God chose them before there was one day of their life and on the worst day of their life, he will not abandon them. See, God didn't choose you to lose you. God didn't choose you to abandon you. God chose you. When Peter fell, it was Jesus that came after him to restore you. And this morning, if God's chosen you and you're his, he's after you to restore you if you've fallen. He's after you to strengthen you when you're weak. He's not going to let you get away because he loves you. You and I have hope because we've been chosen by the Father the second reason true believers have hope is because true believers are consecrated by the Spirit. We're consecrated by the Spirit. He says there in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit. In sanctification of the Spirit. The word sanctification means to set apart, to make holy, to dedicate, to consecrate. I use the word consecration. It's used all over the Bible. It's translated, both these words are, are, are translated from the same word. But the word, English word, means this. It means to set apart as holy, to make or declare as sacred, and to vote entirely. Think about the things that we consecrate. There are things our society consecrates, like, like our Independence Day, July 4th. 
that day set apart on our nation's calendar. It's a day that's set apart, and we're not going to change that date. It's July the 4th. It's that date. We're going to celebrate that date until America is a nation no more. That date is set apart. It's sacred on our calendar as a nation. We remember it. We celebrate it. We thank God for it. It's been consecrated. There are many other things that we set apart. But it's salvation. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, God set you apart. God dedicated you. The Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And he dedicated you to God. He set you apart to God completely and eternally. Now, sanctification, this consecration has two tenses. It may have more. It may have a third. But we're going to talk about two. And this means, number one, we have been sanctified eternally. We have been sanctified eternally. We were chosen and set apart by God in eternity past. But when the Spirit came to live within us, he dedicated us to God forever and ever. We are eternally set apart by God, to God, and for God. This is why how you live and what you do with your life matters. Because the Bible says when you got saved, do you not know That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And in that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit dedicated you to God forever and ever. John MacArthur again says this. At salvation, the sanctifying work of the Spirit sets believers apart from sin to God. Thank God for that. Separates them from darkness to light. Did you walk in the darkness? When you got saved, things started to change. He sets them apart from unbelief to faith. And he mercifully separates them from a love of sin and brings them to a love of righteousness. Eternally, when I got saved. See, this is why Baptists and many Christians believe you can't lose your salvation because the Father chose you and the Spirit has consecrated you. The Spirit dedicated you to God. But there's a second tense. We have been sanctified eternally we are being notice present tense we are being sanctified daily the holy spirit is at work in our lives if you're a christian this morning the holy spirit's at work in your life to separate you from sin and self and for obedience to the father do you notice that in the verse in sanctification of the spirit for obedience for obedience God didn't give you the Holy Spirit just to say, well, that person, they're saved and nothing else matters. No, the Holy Spirit came to live within you to help you learn to obey God. To help you have a desire to obey God. See, when I got saved, I didn't have any desire to obey God. I got saved and I didn't know what was going on, but there was something working in me. I didn't want to do certain things anymore. And I still did some of those things. But amazingly, I felt terrible about it. Why? Because the only difference was the Holy Spirit now lived within me. And he felt terrible about it. He felt terrible about those things I do and those things I did. This is why the Bible warns us as Christians not to quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit's going to lead you to obey God. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're disobeying God, it's because you're quenching the Holy Spirit and you've stopped listening to God. And you can be a Christian and be rebellious. You can be a Christian in a foreign land. You can be a Christian and be in the hog pen of sin. The Spirit works to lead us to obedience. And now we're responsible to yield our lives to the Holy Spirit. 
We're responsible to take the word of God and listen to it and let God lead us and consecrate our own lives daily. Many times I pray in the morning, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells me to be filled with the Spirit, doesn't it? Galatians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's my responsibility. So I get up in the morning and say, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me. Cleanse me of all this stuff that's in me that would keep me from obeying you. Cleanse me from the decisions that I've made and the things that I'm doing wrong. And let me walk in holiness because he's going to lead me to obedience so I can be so I can be holy. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that we're to do this. Look down in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. Look at this. He's going to tell us. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Well, how in the world can I be holy? I got to have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit has to have me. But that's still my response. Be holy in all your conduct because God is holy and now God lives in you. Be holy. It's our part to seek to yield to the Spirit and live out a holy life. We're to yield to the Spirit. We're to obey the Word. We're to seek holiness. You know why Christianity's got such a bad testimony? It's not because of Jesus. It's because people who claim Jesus and live for the world and live for the flesh are not being sanctified to obedience to God. The best picture that I know of an earthly picture of sanctification is marriage. It is a beautiful picture of sanctification. And we talk about the sanctity of marriage. What does that mean? The set apart nature of marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman is set apart to God. That's why all these redefinitions and all this other mess that the world is doing is blasphemy to God because God set marriage up. He, it was the first institution he created and everything that defiles it is sin and the Bible says that God will judge people who defile marriage. But marriage is a beautiful picture of sanctification. Just think about it. A man and a woman get married And that man comes out from all the men in the world. And that woman comes out from all the women in the world. And they come together and the two become one. They belong to each other now. He doesn't belong to any other woman. She doesn't belong to any other man. They've been set apart for each other. Sanctified. On December the 19th, 1988, Karen became my wife. And on that day, she became my wife. I became her husband. But every day since then, she's had to be my wife. I've had to be her husband. That means I had to decide to present tense actively be her husband. She had to decide present tense actively to be my wife. Now we had a date, we got married and we became husband and wife. But every day after that, I had to decide to be her husband. To love her and honor her and cherish her. To walk with her through life. She had to decide each day to do that same thing with me. This is the way it is to be saved. In February 1991, I got saved and the Holy Spirit came upon me. And God sanctified me for himself. But every day since then, I've had to get up and decide. Am I going to follow? Am I going to yield? Am I going to be holy? Am I going to obey? That's what it means to be sanctified. And the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. 
And sometimes we come to church and we feel convicted because we're not sanctified people. The Holy Spirit's not going to be satisfied. God's not satisfied with church attending people. God's satisfied with sanctified people. Because that's why he gave you the Spirit. So we have hope because we've been chosen by the Father. We've been consecrated by the Spirit. And finally, we've been cleansed by the Son. We've been cleansed by the Son. Verse number 2 continues, For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sprinkling of the blood. All three members of the Trinity are at work in the selection, sanctification, and salvation of God's people. You may not have thought that, sa- that your salvation was a Trinitarian work, but it is. All of God was at work saving all of you. Chuck Swindoll says... If you're not careful, you might zip right through and miss the work of the Trinity in your salvation. Many Christians forget or at least fail to fully appreciate that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in perfect harmony to establish our new identity as children of God. And the Bible says the Son's part is to cleanse us from sin. And he does that by the sprinkling of his blood. Now, don't get confused by that word sprinkling. The word sprinkling is never a picture of of baptism. It's always a picture of cleansing. Did you know that there's a story where this arises from? There's a story in the book of Exodus where God was setting apart the people of Israel. He was consecrating them in Exodus 19 to 24. And Exodus 20 is where he gives them the Ten Commandments for the first time. But you know what happens in that story? God tells Moses to gather all the people. And they sacrifice blood. And Moses takes some hyssop and he sprinkles blood on the book. But he also sprinkles blood on those people. It was a picture that this is a holy law sanctified by blood. And you are a holy people sanctified by the blood of the sacrifice. The blood that's going to pay your price to get you into the presence of God. And Moses would sprinkle those people with that blood. And they would stand there. Could you imagine? In this ceremony, they're sprinkling the blood of an animal on you. But in the spiritual realm, when you come to Jesus, he sprinkles you with his eternal blood. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about this and it tells us the difference. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 says this, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's comparing this Old Testament tabernacle where Moses was at. Uh, he says, that's made with hands. It's not, that's where Moses was. But he said, Christ didn't come into that one. Not with the blood of goats and calves. That's what they had. But with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all. He went into heaven. And he obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption, when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, our salvation was bought and paid for. So this morning, I want to tell you, if you're here trying to earn your way to heaven, you're hoping you're doing enough, giving enough, you hope you've done enough. Listen, he paid it all, all to him I owe. He obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, it means these people, their bodies, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God? Cleanse your conscience. Look at this. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know what this passage is about? It's about the inner work of Jesus. Cleanse your conscience. See, the inner work of God is about not just washing our standing, but washing our souls. 
Anybody here remember when you got saved? And it felt like you had a bath on the inside. When I got saved at 23 years old, I was filthy. I was a blasphemer. I was vulgar, a wicked and ungodly man. And I'm just telling you, it's like somebody cleansed me on the inside. What was it? The blood of Jesus was cleansing my conscience. He was washing me on the inside. He was cleansing me. And now as a Christian, some of you walk around and you feel guilty about what you did 50 years ago or 20 years ago and you messed up this and you messed up that and you've sinned and can God forgive you? Are you saved? If you're saved, what you need to do is go to the Father and say, God, I messed this up and I've sinned, but I'm going to trust you with it and I'm going to stop worrying over it. I'm going to stop beating myself up over what happened 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I'm going to trust in the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus who died to pay for my sins. And the Bible tells us how to do this in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now look at this. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. That terrible stuff, I want to tell you this morning, you come in this place and you are a pedophile. If you'll confess it and repent, he can cleanse you from it. Now I know somebody sitting next to you might hate your guts for it. Somebody in society may hate your guts for it. But I'm telling you, Jesus died for that. You've been an adulterer. You've been a homosexual. You've been far from God. You've been a blasphemer, a drunkard, whatever. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If you're not willing to deal with it, you're going to have to live with it. If you're willing to deal with it, then you won't have to live with it. How? If we confess our sins, we acknowledge our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're, we go to God and we confess it. Now, this is a passage for Christians, by the way. Whatever you've done, whatever you're ashamed of, whatever you're doing right now, if you will confess it and forsake it, he will cleanse you of it. See, we think God will forgive us if we can stop it. We think God will forgive us if we can get better. God's not going to forgive you because you get better. God's going to forgive you because you come to the end of yourself, you confess your unbelief, you confess your sins, you confess your unrighteousness, and then he will forgive you. That's what he does. And if you're not saved this morning, you've been playing games with God, you're just sitting here and you're in church and you think you're a good person, but you're genuinely not saved, if you'll confess that, he'll forgive you too. Peter knew what it was like to blow it. He knew what it was like to fail. Could you imagine being in the courtyard with Jesus three times you deny him? And not only that, the Bible says Peter cursed. He used some street language to try to show the folks, I ain't with him. And then to see Jesus look at him, the Bible says Peter went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus came to him and restored him. Peter knew the truth of this passage, what it was like to have God cleanse his conscience and allow him to live freedom. If you're a true believer this morning, you have hope, regardless where you are. Regardless if you are suffering, regardless if you have failed, if you've fallen away, if you look and you say, I'm not the person that I know I should be, 
God has saved me, but I am not the person I know I should be, there's hope for you. Why? Because as far as God the Father was concerned, I want you to think about this. I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died on the cross and shed his blood for me. As far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved the night in February 1991 when he convicted me. And under his conviction, I basically prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And if God would go through all that to save me, he's not going to let me go. There's nothing this world can bring that can separate us from the love of God. You can come back to him this morning. You can start again. Or you can start for the first time. If you will acknowledge. If you will not say that you have no sin and deceive yourself. You can come. Some of you are doubting and wavering. Some of you deal with a guilty conscience. You don't think God can forgive you. The Bible says he cleanses us from all sin. You can be forgiven today. Some of you are suffering and need to call on Jesus for strength and healing. You've grown weak. You've grown weary. Your faith is weary. You may be even having some anger towards God because of your suffering. And God will still love you and receive you. Some of you today, maybe you're ready to join this church. You need to come. And some of you need to be saved. The Bible says repent, acknowledge to God you're a sinner. Acknowledge, don't deceive yourself any longer, but instead confess that you're a sinner and ask him to forgive you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You come this morning, whatever your need is, our God is able.